And so when you hit a roadblock or you hit an end date or an end point, it is hard. It is emotional. Um, and you've just got to figure out that the other thing that has always happened in our country is that losses have led to wins. And so, you know, you get blocked or knocked down and then you figure out what's the next step. It presents you the map for the next step of how did we lose? Sit down and do the analysis. Where did we lose? How do we prevent that from happening again? And let's go forward. It's the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Today's conversation, I think, is a really important one to listen to if you care about the world. (laughs) Is that uh, general enough for you? Um, No, what I mean is that I think that a lot of us care about um, social progress and making change and improving the systems that we live in. But I would say the majority of us don't do that on a day-to-day basis. Um, Today, I got to talk to my friend Bo Shuff, who is the executive director of DC Vote, which is an organization working to get representation for the people that live in the District of Columbia. And whether that's through uh, policy changes or laws or statehood, um, that's part of our discussion today. But I also wanted to know from Bo what it's like to work in a field that is very much a, can be a grind could be something that demoralizes you and how you keep your focus and your energy in the face of adverse conditions. And I think everybody can learn from that. Uh, We also talk about how he got into uh, the work that he does currently and um, also why uh, I shouldn't refer to... uh, the world, you know, what you think of as like beltway politics or whatever, why I shouldn't just call that DC, which is a, a habit that I have had, which I have now been disabused of. And now you can hear Bo disabuse me of that in this conversation. I think it's just a really interesting look at what it's like to really work on social issues as opposed to just relating to, uh, to them through social media. Anyway, enjoy my conversation with Bo Shuff. Bo Chef, welcome to the Chris Grace Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. Bo and I have been friends for quite a long time now. Uh, since uh, And uh, I think physically we first met outside of the country in yes. Iceland. Well, for a while, we had only seen each other outside of the country, oddly. Yeah, that's right. We had an unspoken agreement that we were not to be in the same U.S. space. That's uh, right. And then we, we broke that. <laughs> yeah. That's better. I think that's better. Yeah. Um, so, Bo, um, as I mentioned, you're the executive director of DC Vote. Um, but one thing that I think has struck me over the years is I feel like you have this combination of you clearly have like a lot of knowledge and experience in this in the world of uh, politics, specifically like in DC in general. But I've also noticed that you've kept a lot of like your sense of wonder when you like uh spontaneously like meet somebody famous or like you still have um the enthusiasm that i wouldn't associate with like a a veteran you know a jaded veteran do you mean somebody politically famous or just sort of famous in general i just mean famous in general but but politically famous too like actually sometimes on on social media you'll post like i can't believe i got to talk to this person and sometimes it's share 
And sometimes it's a person that I don't know, but who is significant politically. Yeah, I mean, Cher is the pinnacle. Absolutely, for sure. Was the best day ever. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that the... So, to me, it's not even necessarily about being famous. Because I have also met famous people that I'm just like, okay, whatever. It is people that I'm impressed or engaged with or relating to their passion for whatever it is they do. And that could, like... I have always said the person I wish that I could have met and or if, you know, you do the dinner with the one person, it would be Anthony Bourdain, who has nothing to do with anything that I do politically, um, is famous, sure, but I really want to talk to him about kitchens because I worked at some point in restaurants and I would just love to be able to chat with him. So kind of anybody who is passionate and excelling and, and you know, in the moment in what they do and that is I, I I also sometimes feel like I get equal amounts of giddy when I meet somebody who's just really good at their job and really enjoying where they are in the moment, right? Um, so I think that, you know, you ex, you, you see it more in, in famous people, uh, but I think that, that that can be found sort of anywhere. But yeah, I went nuts when I got to meet Elizabeth Warren. Like I went, um, I loved meeting, um, uh, I ran into, uh, oh, he's running for Senate in, in Arizona now. Ruben Gallego uh, outside of a building here in DC and, and had a, a little bit of a fanboy moment. Same thing. Oh, I would do the same um, thing. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, you know, also really enjoyed, like I said, meeting Cher, obviously, cause she's amazing. Um, but it's kind of anybody who's passionate in what they do. Yeah. I just did a workshop production of my fringe show in Austin, Texas. And after the show, somebody was like, Oh, Greg Kassar was there watching. And he's a rep from, uh, Austin, who is sort of, uh, I think part of the whole, like he's tangential to the AOC crew maybe or something, but, uh, I was like, Oh, cool, cool. Um, well I get, yeah, I guess, uh, it's not so much that I connect your, and giddiness is such a good word for it. Cause I have seen you be giddy and it's such a, um, uh, contrast to, I think the 80% Bo Shuff aura, which is like a serious gruff guy. Um, but yeah, actually what I'm more connecting it to is the fact that like when you are, is that I don't see you as having like a jadedness, like a, a weariness about these issues I feel, which I would expect from like DC veterans, I guess. Um, yeah, I feel like you still have a lot of gusto when you're like pursuing these things. I mean, I do. I, <laughs> it's interesting that you asked me that right now. Um, <laughs> My we, my weariness, I, I think that it is both. I, I, be, I still 100%, I still significantly believe in our system, mm -hmm. in the system uh, of checks and balances, in the system that any individual can, in fact, get involved at some level and end up making an impact. Uh, I believe in, the, in, in a system where uh, our voices are important and our voices still matter and they still carry weight. And that's what sort of keeps me going on a day-to-day -day basis because the one of the really cool things and one of the things I get giddiest about are the people who do exactly that, who who aren't necessarily – their last name isn't Kennedy, mm -hmm. right, where they're automatically born into into impact. You, you mentioned just quickly AOC, but she's a prime example of somebody going from bartending to Congress. Um, Maxwell uh, uh, down in um, Florida, new representative – who literally ran his campaign while Ubering at night to make money. Mm -hmm. um, so it's you, you, in this work 
to me, I latch on to the stories that uphold our values and those reinforce my values. Uh, and that's what helps me sort of defend, for lack of a better word, against the onslaught of stupid that we also see mm-hmm. um, and the onslaught of privilege and the onslaught of assumptions of, of uh, what's the um, entitlement mm-hmm. uh, that we see out of, of, of a lot of people who, who are involved in politics and governance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very impressive from the outside. I feel like I would have uh, uh, given up long ago. <laughs> uh, let Let's talk about your work at DC Vote because, like, yeah, what's I think I know, but what specifically are you is your organization trying to do? So, our organization, in in the grand scheme of things, is trying to ensure equality for the people of the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. And you know, I say that, and everybody's like, "Well, what, you know, they're not equal." And, and, and no, they're not. The people of the District of Columbia do not have representation in the Congress. Uh, and more importantly, almost the Congress has the ability to overturn our local laws and governance. Um, you know, from a from a lofty standpoint, the lack of of representation is the bigger issue. From a day to day living in D.C. standpoint, the overturning of our laws is the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And so we work on multiple fronts, and all of them those can be solved with statehood. And that's the one that we talk about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I draw a lot of parallels to the marriage movement because there's a lot of things that come with relationship recognition or civil unions of all of the different words. Uh, but marriage encompasses it all. And statehood is the same when you're talking about representation and equality. Um, and so that's what that's what DC Vote is focused on. Yeah, so essentially... Okay, one way is we could patchwork together a bunch of like similar rights for you guys by like making all these agreements and all this stuff, or we could just make you a state and it would sort of cover all those things. Yeah, sort of that's true. Like there's been, and this is a really common perception um, that you could do, you could give us budget autonomy, the right to spend our own money. You could give us legislative autonomy, the right to pass our own bills. You could even give us two senators. But then you run afoul of the 10th Amendment. And the 10th Amendment to the United States Constitution basically says that anything that is not explicitly given to the federal government is reserved to the states, Mm -hmm. any power. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't speak, you know, 1776 English, and I want to make sure that people get the gist of it. But that's what it says, is that if it's not explicitly laid out for the federal government, it resides in the states. And that's the heart of every conflict we have right now, is is the federalism, states' rights versus federal. And it's the the roots of all conflicts going back to the beginning of the country. Um, even if you do that whole patchwork and you make us look equal, nowhere in that 10th Amendment does it say the powers are given to the states or random federal territory that lives near the capital and somehow has some rights. Mm-hmm. Right. So you would still not get rid of the ability to con- for Congress to overturn our local laws. You would still not... Um, make us equal and we have multiple times tried separate but equal scenarios and we know they don't work mm-hmm. well that re- reminds me of when they were trying separate but equal with like civil unions because it was like sure we could do all this stuff but like inevitably there's some tax form somewhere that wasn't covered and that tax form only has like single or married it doesn't have you know same-sex civil union on it or whatever um, yeah. It also uh, makes me wonder, have you gotten so back when marriage equality was the thing, uh, there's pushback because it was like, hey, if 
uh, people of the same sex can get married, it devalues our marriages. It's completely irrational thought. But do you get similar pushback of like, if we make DC a state, like, you know. If 700,000 people more have representation, then our representation isn't worth as much. Yeah. Yes, we get that. Especially when the conversation is around the Senate. If there are two more senators, our senators' votes aren't worth as much. Um, I, my typical comeback is that if everybody isn't representative, your senators' votes are worthless anyway because mm-hmm. uh, they don't actually express the will of the people. Um, but yeah, that the they're all of the crazy arguments. Like we could we could do an entire podcast on crazy things that have been said in opposition to DC statehood. Yeah, I mean, uh, to what degree? Who are the people you have to convince? Is it other, is it political representatives or is it the public? I'm sure it's both, but like, what is the focus? Yeah, it's sort of, there are sort of three buckets that we identified. So six years ago, we laid out a plan um, and, and we identified sort of three needs. One, we had to increase support among elected officials. That's true. Congress is going to make this decision. They can do it with a a piece of simple legislation, which is not simple. It's misnamed, but uh, a simple uh, 51 majority. Um, And they're the ones that are going to make the ultimate decision. They make the decision based on the input of two other entities. One is the general public uh, and two are organizations that represent the general public, Um, whether that's a labor union or donor class or a PAC or you know, whatever it is that that pulls or a think tank or a membership organization or whatever, those organizations carry significant weight because a lot of Americans uh, use their rep- their membership in organizations as a proxy engagement. Right. So I don't know anything about all of the things ACLU argues in favor of, but I proxy to them my representation by being a member. Right. So if they can then go up to the hill and be like, we have 18 million members or whatever it is they say. Mm-hmm. Um so because of that's how our structure works, we need public opinion in polling to go up. We need the number of organizations signing on to statehood to go up. And we need the number of elected officials being responsive to that to go up. Um, I mean, I've noticed that it seems like you've gotten you've garnered more support uh, from politicians over the years. And I'm wondering, like, do, do you think any of this tracks with the way that like, I mean, even marriage equality at one point, people were like, this is definitely not going to happen in our lifetimes. And then it's suddenly it's like the rapidity of the changes sometimes is kind of shocking. And, um, yeah, you know, other things like $15 minimum wage or universal basic income. I feel like 10 years ago, they were just jokes. And, yep. and there has been like, do you track any of that with the increased support of the DC statehood? Um, I mean, I don't track it completely because I didn't work on those other issues. Yeah, and I have worked on DC. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm not oh, I, I guess my question it. is like, all of these issues at one point seem kind of hopeless, and then like yeah. the the speed at which it changes seems so unexpected. But then after a while, it's like maybe it should be expected. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is a the 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 challenge of any change is based on inertia. Right. Mm-hmm. And so getting the ball moving is harder than moving the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've seen that over and over again. And that's the pattern I think you're identifying um, is that the first year or the first 10 percent or however you want to define it is vastly harder than the rest mm-hmm. until you get to the last year or the last 10 percent. Mm-hmm. Because the other thing to keep in mind is the number of things that we have come close on but are not there yet. Um, the democracy reforms are the ones tightest to what I do. Uh, but we've, you know, seen it on student debt 
uh, relief. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've seen it on increased uh, access to Obamacare, right? Or, or SNAP benefits or immigration. Like, there's a there are two different lists where they're sort of in the space and talked about a lot, but haven't moved a ton. And then there are the ones that 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 especially if you aren't sort of in it day to day, look like they were going nowhere and then suddenly finished. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that also is just like not everybody everywhere knows everything about all the things, despite what the bagel movie tried to make. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, okay, wait, let's quickly knock out the noob, uh, the, you know, the 10 noob things that people always say to you when they're like DC state. You know, like you, you say, DC should be state. People should have representation, and they say like, because uh, I've asked you. I remember like first time I ever mentioned this, I asked you some of these things. So, like, what's up with the flag? Yep, uh, the flag's super easy. You can Google fifty-one star flag. It's a slight variation on the stars, um, and it's ready to go. The I think it's the Navy actually that does is in charge of flag design, mm -hmm. and and they are all set. I can tell a really funny story quickly. We hung 51, the mayor hung 51 star flags all the way down Pennsylvania Avenue. So <laughs> I went down to take a picture in front of one. It was a little protesty action thing. I went down to take a picture in front of one, but behind us on Pennsylvania Avenue was a massive 50 star flag. Mm -hmm. And I asked a tourist that was walking by if they would take my photo in front of this specific flag, the 51 star flag. They said, yes, but why don't we take it in front of the big one? And I said they were different. And we argued for two minutes about whether or not they were different. <laughs> right. Um, and finally, I just went, look, just trust me on this. Just of all the people you're going to meet today, trust me <laughs> on this one thing. Right. Um, yeah. What are, what, you know, sorry. What are, easy. what are some of the other noob questions you get? Noob pushbacks. Uh, where would the capital of the capital be? Okay. Um, and we don't know where our capital would be. Uh, it, we know where the building would be, but we won't have a capital city. Um, which is hard for people to understand sometimes, but just because that's the structure in place doesn't mean that's the structure that has to be in place. Mm -hmm. There's no legal requirement for us to have a capital city to be a state. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, who would the senators be? Like they want to know who I think the actual people would be, <laughs> right. as if we're not going to have an election. Um, that seems very concerning to people. Um, would the postal code still be D.C.? I've had people ask me that. Uh -huh. So would you still write Washington, D.C.? Um, where, like, they ask me things that they just don't know about D.C. Specifically, like, how would the school board be formed? Not knowing that we already have a school board. Who would right. handle the policing? Not knowing we already have a D.C. police, right? D.C. functions as a city, a state, and a county all at the same time. We do all of the functions of those three levels of government. Mm -hmm. So if it's in those three levels where you live or whoever's listening lives, we already do them. Right. Um, and so no concern that we're going to keep taking those 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 over. Do you get so like if I live in California, I don't interact with the, with D.C. very much. I, it makes sense. Maybe for yeah. someone in California might have these questions. Do you get these questions from people that are like working in D.C. every day? Like are, are people that live in that area still still mystified by how D.C. works? So, you know, there's there's two really big different chunks of population in D.C. And there are the people who have lived here forever. Uh, their families are here, fifth generation, sixth generation, whatever it is. There are the people, and, and along with those, I tend to classify long-term residents, anybody over 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I choose 25 specifically because maybe it includes me. <laughs> um, and then there are the folks who are new to D.C. The one fact about D.C. is there are always people coming here because they seek to be involved in our system. Mm -hmm. 
And so those folks don't always necessarily know, and they don't necessarily know. I, I'm learning stuff all the time too, even actually. Uh, and and uh, you know, I just learned, ex- for example, how many days uh, some of our disapproval resolutions have to sit in the U.S. Senate before they can be privileged motions. Mm-hmm. And I like that's about as wonky. How many? As I can uh, uh, Eighteen. Uh, Twenty. Close. I was Pretty good guess. <laughs> Um, but that's like the wonkiest of wonkinators, right? Like, and so not everybody is ever going to know at that level. So we get a variety of questions all up and down from in, but even people who've lived here forever, uh, ask some questions cause it doesn't impact their day to day either. Yeah. I, I, I've tried to wrestle with this thing. I've been thinking about politics in general, which is, I feel like it's such a, it's like any, probably like any other industry where people outside of the industry think they know so much about it. And then the people inside are like, uh, actually, and the reason this came up for me was, uh, I think in the last election, maybe I was looking at a meme that was like, Hey, you know, uh, Kamala Harris actually has a better progressive voting record than Bernie based on some scorecard or whatever. And I went to look at this scorecard and it was basically like they had voted the same on like everything except for one, one bill. And I went to go look at the bill. I was like, what is the bill? Kamala voted one way. Bernie voted a different way. And I go to read the bill and I could not understand what they were voting on. Um, it was a, f- a second language of just like government speak in terms of motions or amendments to something. And when it came down to the actual thing that they voted differently on, I literally couldn't understand it. And yeah, I was just thinking like, we make these big pronouncements from the outside, but actually like there's probably this whole other job that both Bernie and Kamala have to be good at, which is like, they're sitting in Congress and they have to write a piece of text, a certain way, submit it to a certain office. And like, there's all this day to day stuff that then we magnify into like, Oh my God, they're so different. And it's like, well, I don't even know what the job is half the time. I don't know if like what, if you see that from your, where you are. Oh, for goodness sake, yes. Um, Like every election cycle, I have to remind myself that most of the people I interact with don't do this for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even like, so even to your point with with Kamala and Bernie having to know the specific piece, really they have to know how to hire somebody who knows how to do the specific piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it is the staff that writes the law. Yeah, absolutely. The members review them and, and whatever and make their own edits and have brilliant ideas too and shitty ideas depending on which one. Um, or which day, I should say. Um, but there is an entire staff of, you know, brilliant environmental lawyers who know environmental law inside and out will write the section that governs the EPA. And then there is a different set of brilliant procedural lawyers who understand Senate rules and what you have to do to then move that EPA package through the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one could ever possibly be expected to know all of those things at a level that it would take to make the world function. Mm-hmm. Um, there are experts on, like, I am not a policy expert. I don't write policy. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to law school. I, I'm a strategist and an advocacy expert because I know how to change people's minds on issues. Um, but there are di- constant days when I am calling up to the Hill or calling friends of mine who are, who are lobbyists or uh, lawyers or drafters to be like, what does this actually say? Mm-hmm. Do I actually like this or not? Um, because it is confusing, especially if you're not trained in that specific segment of the law. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, 
really vitally important because the specificity of the law is what makes it fair. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's vagueness in the law, you can have disparate um, application. And so as you get more specificity, the more challenging it becomes to be an expert in that. And that's why we rely on those folks. Um, so tell me a little bit about like how you got to where you are. So um, you said you worked in a restaurant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how, do you, how do you go from being working in a restaurant to being the executive director of DC Vote? Sure. Um, I will try to do this quickly because it's, it's bizarrely convoluted. Um, <laughs> When I was, I went to school here in, at, in D.C. at GW, and while I was doing that, the Clinton campaign was going on, the Bill Clinton campaign was going on, um, and I volunteered on that campaign a little bit in the in the offices here, and then I really got involved in volunteering in on the inaugural. Um, but what I learned in the offices of the campaign was that I wasn't seeing what I was learning, and so f- therefore, I, I sort of put all my eggs into this idea that if I worked hard on the on the um, inaugural, I would get a, a job in the administration as a 19-year-old with no college degree, mm-hmm. right? Like, brilliant <laughs> idea. Fabulous plan. Um, that did not go to fruition, and so I bailed out. I got really pissed and jaded about the whole thing, and I bailed out, and I went and worked in restaurants for 10 years. Um, restaurants and special event management is what I did for 10 years and gained a whole different set of skills um, that are unbelievably applicable to politics. Um, and it was in 2000 that a really smart friend of mine dragged me kicking and screaming out to L.A. to work on the 2000 convention um, as like combining my love for politics back with my, what I had been doing in special events. Uh, and I got bit again by the political bug in 2000 and I went to work for Gore in Florida and that left me um, frustrated. <laughs> uh, frustrated. Uh, <laughs> just it's the politest way I can put it. But then I went back to my, like, I went just, my plan was to just go back to my happy job in restaurants. Like, I loved what I was doing, but I had just witnessed this, like, ridiculousness. Um, and I go back to restaurants and people are bitching about getting, like, a 12% tip. And I'm like, I just can't do this. I can't, you lost $4. The country lost democracy. Like, mm. I can't, like, my scope is just different. And so I moved back up here in 2001, uh, moved back up to D.C. and lived on a friend's couch until I found a job. Um, and that job took me to a bunch of different states working on uh, different campaigns and consulting and, and yada yada over the course of, of 13 or 14 years. And then in 2014, I was hired to be Mayor Bowser's campaign manager um, here in the district. She's now just won her third term. Hmm. Um, and that campaign, I had always loved D.C. I came here by choice to go to university. Um, I love this town. I love this city a lot. And but it exposed me to the city in a whole new way that I had never experienced before running that campaign. And that's what made me look for opportunities to be involved both on a national scale, which is what my background was, but also with the local piece and statehood just made sense. Mm. Uh, What does that feel like on the night when you win, when the mayor wins that election? Um, I really wanted to sleep. (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, it was it's it's. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it, it really is an amazing thing to be a part of. To, I worked for her for 15 months on that campaign, which is an exceptionally long campaign. Hmm. Um, I think it was 15, somewhere around there. Um, it was the hardest job I have ever had. Uh, no one will ever outwork Mayor Bowser, uh, ever. Um, but also, it was a really important campaign, I thought. 
Um, and so, it, you know, it, there was all of the emotions all at once, like this unbelievable outpouring of energy that we were done, uh, unbelievable pride that we had won and that we had meet, met our numbers and that we had met our goals, um, excitement for the future and a little bit of terror that actually now we were going to have to govern, that <laughs> they were going to have to govern. I knew I was not going to be part of that. <laughs> right. Um, that's just not what I do. Um, and so all of those like on the same night and I was lucky enough that my mom and Sean and my sister were all here. Um, they came in to help the last weekend. I mean, Sean was here, but they, they came, my husband, um, my family came in to help. And so we were all sort of there together and it was just, it was really, it's cool. It's, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> it is, and it is way more fun than the other side. Cause I've been on that side too. Uh, I mean, th this might seem extremely obvious, but like to, I guess, uh, to what degree, I mean, I'm sure in the, in the career, it's better to win than to lose these things. Um, do people in the industry have a way of seeing like, hey, you lost, but you did a great job on that campaign? Or is it overly weighted towards like stacking up wins on your resume? No, I think that um, that is a really good question, actually. I there is both, right? There, a win isn't automatically like a you know free ticket to ride, mm -hmm. um, because there are crappy campaigns that win, mm -hmm. and there are really good campaigns that lose because there are always situations outside of a campaign that impact the results. Right. And so, for the industry, for people who do this all the time, we can see really good campaigns and we can see really crappy campaigns regardless of what happens on election night. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's the goal. But the example that I sometimes give when I'm talking about uh, working on campaigns is that we are the only industry where we cannot move a date and we cannot come in second place. <laughs> right. So if you think of like Pepsi, who I think is the second largest beverage company in the world, whatever it is, their CEO still makes a gajillion dollars. Mm -hmm. And if they want to roll out a product a day late, it's no big deal. It's probably a deal, but it's not a huge deal, and they're still going to make billions of dollars over that product. That's The rollout date of that product isn't going to make or break that product. Mm. You, know, you see it in Hollywood that films get pushed a week for their premiere or whatever. We don't have that luxury. And so we can see all kinds of campaigns that ran really, really well and then got smacked Oh, I don't know, with an FBI letter three days before election day. <laughs> right. Right? There's, um, and so I don't know that the same sort of win-loss scorecard applies. Um, and I have absolutely learned more on losing campaigns than I have on winning campaigns sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, are there things that a layperson could look at a campaign and go, like, that's a good campaign? Uh, my number one, number one thing, if you and somebody else lives in your same house and you both get a piece of mail from the campaign, mm -hmm. that is a campaign that is either not checking their mail vendor or is lazy in their list duplication. Ah. Right. Because every piece of mail that I send as a campaign costs me money. I can always find more money, but it's not fun. And so if I'm sending you and somebody else who lives in your house each of you is the same exact piece of mail and they are landing on the same day. Either somebody didn't do oversight of the mail house and the mail house forgot to dedupe the list or the campaign itself forgot to dedupe the list. So to me, there's little tells of um, laziness and sloppiness. Um, you know, our lawn signs, 
Lawn signs don't win elections. I hate them so much. They are just an environmental disgustingness. But are they at least somewhere people will see them? Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's those kind of little things. Do if you're if you're trying to volunteer, do they return your phone calls or your emails or your sign up form? If you fill out a sign up form to get involved, are is there a speedy or at least a reasonable amount of time that they get back to you? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same way, kind of that you would judge customer service of a business. Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, voters and volunteers and donors are all, for lack of a better comparison, customers. And there probably is some degree of people in a campaign uh, maybe like phoning it in after a certain point <laughs> if they're like disillusioned with what they're working on or something. Uh, I mean, the staff, maybe volunteers just just whittle away. Yeah. Right. Like. If a volunteer gets burnout for volunteers is a real life thing and it absolutely has to be managed. Um, there will be volunteers who come in like early and they're like, I can do four days a week. And you're like, no, I'll see you one day a week and then we'll keep you for four weeks. Right. Like it is just um, better off. So volunteers will, will whittle away or become jaded and you would just, they won't return the phone calls. They won't sign up for as many shifts, whatever it is. Staff. Um, yes, you can totally see it. Sometimes uh, it's hard work. Um, and it is long, exhausting hours, and it is unthanked work because every single person, A, thinks they have a problem that needs to be solved, and B, thinks they're an expert on how campaigns run, and C, 100% will share those thoughts with you every single chance they can. Um, so, yeah, you see people get tired, and, you know, we take steps to give them a half day off or, or get them out and do something fun or, or, you know, some sort of cool part of the job to remind them why they're there. That's when you bring Cher in for a little pep talk. <laughs> uh, God, if only. Hey, what are some of the applicable things from restaurant work that apply to what you're doing now? I, I, I tell people this all the time. I will look for restaurant work on a resume if I am hiring campaign or advocacy people. 100%. 100%. Um, restaurant people work long, ridiculous hours. They do it on their feet on uncomfortable floors with uncomfortable shoes. If you can wait tables or tend bar or work in a kitchen, you can work in any other job as far as I'm concerned. But beyond that, it especially waiting tables and bartending, it immediately helps you prioritize the needs of the people right in front of you. Um, right? Like even though all seven people got sat at the same time, you can judge very quickly who needs to be addressed, what problem can be solved quickly, and what problem is the longer term one. It teaches you customer service and politeness. It exposes you to a diversity of humanity that no other job I can think of exposes you to. I think even retail at some level self-selects economic bands, uh, depending on what kind of store you work in. That's not as true with restaurants um, because you will see, if you're in a semi-nice restaurant, right, you will see folks who it's a special occasion for them. So they're out or, and you'll see other folks. And, and so they saved up money or that, you know, it's the big expenditure for the month. And there are other folks who are in there every single day because their economics is different, but you're still interacting with them both. So I think the diversity of people that you interact with, the ability to learn how to prioritize and the ability to think on your feet and be adaptable in a hard situation is absolutely applicable. Uh, have you developed a tough skin for, Hey, I have a setback. I need to like regroup, re-energize it. I, my, again, my perception from the outside is probably a lot of people in DC must ex- at some point experience losing or this thing just didn't go through or this thing got dropped. And how do you, so I'm assuming people have like a skin for re-energizing. Yeah. Um, that's hard. Like, uh, 
how Stella got her groove back, right? Like, how do you how do you catch that fire again? Um, can be really challenging. There are definitely defeats that that are. So the night that Gore finally conceded, for example, to go all the way back to 2000, mm. um, I was in Tallahassee and he called us first and we were on a conference call. If you watch a movie called Recount, you can see a recreation of it. And there's a bigger dude in the movie wearing a chambray shirt. That's supposedly me. <laughs> um, uh, not named. I don't have an IMDb credit for that or anything. But um, that one was hard. I went for a, a, a two-hour walk on the beach. Mm. Um, in Clearwater, Florida, just to like get away from everything in the moment um, and figure out what comes next. Um, and then like a week later, I went to Disney with a friend and then we went to downtown Disney and got completely drunk and passed out in the hotel room. <laughs> um, so there's a variety of coping methods for it, uh, some healthier than others. Um, but it's not easy because it is a business of passion, right? None of us do this work because we're going to get super rich. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a handful probably that figure out a grift. Um, well, okay. There's at least, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's, um, there's a few. Um, but the vast majority of people who do this work would do it because they believe in something that they're working on. And so when you hit a roadblock or you hit an end date or an end point, it is hard. It is emotional. Um, and you've just got to figure out that, the other thing that has always happened in our country is that losses have led to wins. And so, you know, you get blocked or knocked down and then you figure out what's the next step. It presents you the map for the next step Mm -hmm. of how did we lose, sit down and do the analysis. Where did we lose? How do we prevent that from happening again? And let's go forward. I think it's interesting that you bring up the, the grift uh, because I think that like when there's this whole like, you know, I know a lot of people criticize West Wing for having this like sort of liberal fantasy of what democracy is like. And um, but there's sort of these two views of D.C., which is like one, what you're describing, where like people go in not for the money they care about, um, like society and our the the things that hold up our republic, basically, and they want to go work on them. And then there is this other perception that they are just a bunch of like cash grabby. Uh, hey, let me just extract as much money from the state as I can through, you know, manipulation or being behind the scenes. And so I guess I, I feel like I would be frustrated if I was in the trenches every day working on this stuff and I'm not getting paid a lot, I'm working a lot of hours and then seeing there is a small slice of almost like politically adjacent public figures that, have figured out a way to sort of they're essentially like sports radio personalities and they sort of exploit the negative vision of DC as being like, uh, Hey, they are trying to screw you. And let me tell you why I'm the one with the inside view. They don't have much relationship to all of this process stuff that we're talking about or by like, you know, you have to have a higher staff that knows about environmental law that like none of that nuance is in yeah. like a typical grifters view. And so, like, what's it like to almost see it? I mean, it almost seems like they're kind of outsiders looking in, just exploiting the industry for money. Yeah. I think you. there's a lot in that question. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to push back a little bit against you the same way I push back against every single media I interact with. Yeah. Right? When we are talking about government and the people involved with writing laws, et cetera, that's not D.C. 
Okay. Um, that is the U.S. federal government and the things associated with it. And it's mostly Congress and a little bit the White House. So, you know, when we when we talk about there are people in D.C. who are grifters, I would say there are people in Congress. I mean, and I would almost say there's I would almost say there's people in media, <laughs> but uh, well, there's people. A, there's people all over the planet yeah. that are grifters. Um, but to, what's important to me is that there are 700,000 people who live here who are teachers and mm. firefighters and parents who are just working on like have no connection to the federal government um just like if you live in a in a town with a big ass army base it's a big deal in your town but you may not have anything to do with it and your town has a distinct personality yeah i mean that's so that's one thing hollywood is the biggest challenge we have to statehood is people who say that they don't know anybody who lives here who doesn't work in politics gotcha and that's just not accurate yep thank you for that correction um and also and i do it to everybody so like um yeah not picking on you yeah yeah but Uh, i mean i should know that because i live in hollywood so (laughs) yeah same kind of right hollywood yeah um anyway um i think with any entity that has a transaction that is financial, there is someone trying to figure out how to get a share of it. Mm. And so I don't think that function is unique to people who work in either politics or government because there just happens to be a lot of transactions and they all tend to be big. Um, I think it's true in sports. I think it's true in Hollywood. I think, I'm sorry. I think it's true in movies and film. <laughs> I think it's true in music. I think it is true in surfing. I think it is true in farming. I think it is true wherever. I, it is human nature to try and make yourself, put yourself into a better position. And our system, a better position is procured through cash. To me, There is also an intentional effort by people who think that the government is in the way to do their best to demonize government so that we can they can get rid of it. It started simply with demonizing the DMV, like somebody grasped onto the idea that going to the DMV sucks. And that became a cultural norm for everybody to complain about the DMV. Even when the DMVs got better, they still kept complaining about it. Mm. It is an easy joke in comedy. It's a simple narrative line, you know, in storytelling, whatever it is. I, and it's an easy one to get an emotional reaction out of your friends. Oh, I had to spend the morning at the DMV. Well, you probably actually went for an hour and it was fine. <laughs> and you're just like to gripe, right? That's where it started. And then it moved into attacking uh, civil service unions, AFSCME and teachers unions, etc., uh, in the creation of charter schools and other pieces that have worked to v- to just aggressively demonize government service. Government service used to be a noble calling, uh, right, that, that people aspired to be part of. And now it is, is in some circles seen as a pariah. That's intentional. It is not by accident. It is not simply by people who are jaded. It, the goal of folks who want a smaller government, the way you kill it is by getting people to hate it. And so I think that's part of what you see here. And so what that means is that anybody who has a vested interest in shrinking the size of government amplifies stories that negate the quality of government while minimizing stories that show you how government has helped. Mm -hmm. Um, And that also allows for increased opportunities for grift as you get more and more people in the system 
uh, who are not there, who have given up the idea that this is a noble pursuit and it is simply a job. They are less interested in, in applying their own ethical guidelines to the work that they do. I also wonder sometimes if it's if it's um, some of the success stories are like some to me some of the most interesting success stories around policy are maybe a little more complicated to tell than the failures. So it's oh, yeah. like, hey, this pre K, uh, this pre K hired somebody who wasn't licensed, and so this kid. Uh, didn't drink water for a whole day and he passed out versus like, right. Hey, we made pre-K available to uh, more lower income people and it increased uh, their outcomes when they were in junior high or something like it was like right. five years later, all of their grades were better or something like that. Yeah, precisely. Um, yeah. I mean, it, government governing is also hard, right? And it's not hard. It, it's hard, but I'm, it's complex. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always love my one of my favorite things that happens in critiquing elected officials is so and so did this instead of doing this as if multiple things aren't going on at the same time. Mm, right. And more importantly, as if multiple challenges aren't facing you at the same time. Right. Like, yes, we would absolutely love to, you know, focus on one thing at a time, but that's just not feasible. That's and. And the entire civilization would fall if that's exactly what we were trying to do. And so, yeah, it might not happen at the moment, but it's not an if, then, or an and instead. It just happens to be that the process you are concerned about maybe is taking longer than the process that took a little bit less time. Mm -hmm. Or that got an earlier start date. You don't even necessarily know when it got started, right? Like, even the, the going back to the student debt relief, like, it is not as simple as writing, signing a, a piece of paper. <laughs> right? It is a very complex issue, not only from like, how do you do it, but how do you implement it? And is it even legal to do so in the first place, mm -hmm. um, which is now in the Supreme Court? So um, I also think that that we suffer a bit. The, the idea that we need immediate um, satisfaction, Lord knows I would love things to go faster. Um, but the idea that we need immediate satisfaction or it's a failure versus it's just taking a little longer than we would like it to and let's keep pushing it mm -hmm. um, are two different approaches to the same challenge yeah um are you uh how are you at being friends or acquaintances with people that you have like fundamental disagreements about among the about these kind of things <sighs> the older i get the worse i am <laughs> I mean, you're quite the bulldog on Facebook. Yeah, I will say. <laughs> um, well, and to be fair, I, I, I'm going to give a little trade secret on this one. I don't tend to bulldog my friends. I tend to bulldog my friends' acquaintances. Oh yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> and that tends to be because I need both the practice and the stress relief. Uh huh. Um, and sadly, they're just who happen to be available. Um, for me to vent through. <laughs> uh, um, my roommate in college uh, ended up being chief of staff to a Republican senator. Mm. And he just stepped down from that role. Uh, or the, the senator just didn't return in this January because he, he retired. And so my former roommate uh, no longer works in the Senate. I don't think, um, because three years ago, 
it finally got to a point where I could no longer talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sad. He was one of my closest friends uh, for a long time. Um, but there are, it is not like, it's this idea that we have to see both sides or that all points are valid. Like uh, if we're discussing Big Macs, that's fine, right? Like if somebody doesn't like a Big Mac and I do, we can still be friends. Um, if the issue is whether or not you believe transgender people should exist on the planet, mm-hmm. I can no longer see the world the way you see the world and what is our friendship actually based on. And so there, there, there are thresholds. If we disagree on recycling policy, that it should be 10% versus 5%, right? There, there are degrees to it. But if it is a fundamental value, um, then no, I'm probably not going to associate with you. Mm-hmm. A question that came up for me recently was like, I, I was in Houston doing stand-up last week and a childhood friend of mine um, reached out and was like, Hey, I want to come see the show. And I was like, Oh great. I haven't talked to this guy in forever. Let me add him on Facebook. I go to add him on Facebook. I didn't click add because the, it was like a parody of a MAGA anti-trans page. And, but then when I, we were chatting about the show and I basically said like, Hey, the show I'm doing, it's me. It's, and two other queer comics. Like, you know, this is not a place to come if you're like going to be react badly to, trans or queer content you know um and then in the chat he was like it's not like he was seeing my point of view but he was much more conversational about it than i would have thought based on his facebook page and so what i was wondering was like is this a spot where i look at what he said publicly like it's in like instant like disconnect like i can't associate with this person or is it a case where like I should continue talking to him because he seems like he's actually talking to me and maybe bring him back from the ledge. I mean, the dis- the disconnect between the way he spoke to me and the way his Facebook page is suggested to me that like his public persona had been completely radicalized in a way that wasn't that consistent with his private thoughts. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe it's my job to talk to him about this stuff so that a trans person doesn't have to talk to him about this stuff. Yeah. You know? So sort of going back to like when I go after people on Facebook, I don't tend to actually think that I'm going to convince the person that I am engaging with. Mm-hmm. I write almost everything from the perspective that some third party who may still be trying to make up their mind is reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a lesson taken from my experience in elections, right? There are always people that I am never going to talk to because they're with us no matter what. And there's people that I'm never going to talk to because they are against us no matter what. And really the people that I'm talking to are the anywhere between 20 and 60% in the middle who haven't quite made up their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, secondarily, though, my friends are people that I decide to invest time in. Um, the other big lesson for me coming out of campaigns is that the only resource that I have that I don't get more of is time. Mm-hmm. And so I am very, very selective of where I invest my time. And if I didn't do this work, would it be different that I don't want to invest my time into people who don't see the world that I the same way I do? Maybe it would be different. Um, but I can't spend eight to sixteen hours a day, depending on the day, advocating with all of my heart for something 
and then turn around and go get drinks with somebody who advocates against that. I just can't. Yeah. I mean, there's also opportunity costs because you only have so much energy as well as your time. Right. And uh, do you want to go have drinks and get into an argument with somebody or do you want to go have drinks with somebody you like <laughs> to recharge your batteries for the next day? That's it for me. And it's this and it's true of my social media accounts, too. Right. Like, I don't want to scroll through Facebook and see some stupid right wing meme that then I feel obligated to engage on. Right. Like, I need those outlets for myself and my own energy to recharge and, and like laugh um, and see somebody's recipe or see somebody doing amazing things and be excited by it. Like, I don't want, I don't need to be, cha- I don't need to be challenged 24 seven. And that is 100% a luxury. I get that. Um, because there are people living a life that is 24 seven challenge. Um, but in order to continue doing what I'm doing, I have to be able to, to get away from it now and again. Yeah. Uh, see, I don't go on TikTok cause I don't like seeing that many talented people. Uh, I find that uh, I'm annoyed by how talented people are. Um, Okay. Let's say the next 12 months for DC vote goes storybook exactly the way you want it to go. What, what are the next steps you want DC vote to make in the next year? I mean, to be completely honest, you know, we are in a legislative picture where we don't anticipate statehood passing. Um, So we're in, in, we're doing two things. We are playing defense because we are seeing the Congress attack our autonomy Uh, We had a revision to our criminal code overturned by the Congress and the president already. Uh, We are we had a vote on one in the House two days ago uh, dealing with how we deal with our police accountability. Um, And none of those things should happen. Like the people of the Congress should not get to tell local folks how to run their local jurisdiction, no matter where you live. Um, So a lot of what we're doing is defense on that front and education on moving forward. And so we're doing a fair bit of cultural stuff and, and engaging with music and culture and art, et cetera, to try and find unique avenues to reach audiences we haven't talked to before uh, about statehood and about the people of D.C. So the next 12 months for us is uh, continue to move forward and, and teach people while also making sure nobody sneaks up on us and tries to take away our rights. Uh, gotcha. And, uh, you know, one thing I think would help that, is uh, something a lot of people don't know about Bo is he's a big fan of Moana. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we should integrate some. Uh, I am indeed. That's uh, not something I think people would predict something you'd be into based on your, you know. Maybe not. I mean, I have, you know, Mickey Mouse tattooed on my arm. So I'm a, I am That's a true. huge Disney fan. And I don't <laughs> know why, but that one, the music in that one just resonated with me better than, stronger than a lot in a long time. Oh, wait, we got to get you to meet Lin-Manuel at some point. <laughs> it's funny. This is a great way to like wrap it all back together. The room where it happens, the song from Hamilton, the deal that they are talking about is the one that created the District of Columbia and ultimately screwed 700,000 people out of their representation. <laughs> Lynn left that part out of the song, and I have never been able to to be front to, uh, face-to-face with him to find out why. So, um <laughs> Absolutely, I would tie it all together. Oh, I can't wait for this. Uh, hey, are there way like if I don't live, you know, there? Like if I'm in California or Texas or whatever, is there a way I can help out DC Vote? God, yes, please follow us on all the socials. It's super easy. It's DC Vote, right? And so it's DCVote.org. It's Facebook. It's Twitter. It's uh, Instagram, and it's even TikTok. Although we only have about twelve followers, um, a, because we actually need people outside of the district more than we not more than equal to how we need people inside the district. Because you all have senators and congresspeople that we don't have. Um, so follow us on all the socials. You'll learn how to take action and get involved. You'll see the cool stuff that you're, we're up to. 
um, and you can you can let your elected officials know on our behalf and carry our voice for us. Uh, that sounds great. Bo, I'm going to put under the uh, end of this podcast uh, one of the songs from Moana. Which one should I put? Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Why not? <laughs> right. That's what actually when DC gets statehood, that's gonna we're gonna have you sing that karaoke at the oh, ceremony when it happens. And it'll just I be like, thanks, Bo. <laughs> I feel like if if we get statehood, we'd be big enough to get Dwayne Johnson to come. Sing. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it'll time out because they're making like a live action version of the movie. So right, let's let's shoot for the stars and get the the originator. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Bo. You bet. Breathe it in. I know it's a lot, the hair, the pod. When you're staring at a demigod, what can I say except you're welcome for the tides, the sun, the sky? Uh, that was my conversation with Bo Shuff, executive director for DC Vote. Um, I am going to postpone my ramble till uh next episode actually i'm considering uh okay just some updates for the community uh circle community is gonna shut down soon (laughs) the next time i have to pay the monthly fee i'm gonna shut it down uh no one's gonna cry about that um but i think what i'm gonna be doing is actually putting some of my ramble stuff uh in sort of separate episodes that are shorter maybe midweek um because uh i don't know i just i feel like doing it I can hear the song in my uh, ear holes as I say this. Uh, but let, suffice to say, I mentioned it in the uh, conversation that um, I had uh, done my reading of Scarlett Johansson in Austin. It went very well. In fact, next week I've got a conversation with my friend Ron Barry, who founded the Fusebox Festival where I did the show. And this week I'm doing another one. Uh, and then I have signed up for the Hollywood Fringe in June. So if you're in Los Angeles, I'll be doing five performances in the month of June. Um, just finalizing all the dates and times. I'll have those for you next week if you want to buy some t- uh, tickets. And uh, yeah, also I will be starting a Kickstarter for the Scarlett Johansson show. Um, so uh, ready your pocketbooks for me to ask you for money. Everybody loves that. Uh, okay. I hope you have a great week. Um, the show was recorded and edited by me because it was it was uh, just uh, me putting it all up this time. Eric will be back in the mix for editing next time, and uh, we'll see you next time. Enjoy. Enjoy.